Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Again, good morning and welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We're starting in Genesis, Genesis 1, verse 1. There's so much in Genesis, it's hard to uh, decide what to include and what not to include as you, uh, as you walk through it. Today, we're going to go through all of creation and we're going to see what God said. You know, as Eric was talking so beautifully about groups, one of the great experiences you'll have if you're a part of a group is you'll hear people say, hopefully, if you're in a good group, right, you'll hear people say, hey, it's good to see you. And you'll have the experience of being with people and have them uh, encourage you and affirm you. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, you know, without question, the power of words in forming a young person's heart, whether or not you're going to lift them up or you're going to crush them. If you're a spouse, you know the powerful words that come with encouragement. If you're on a business team, own a business, work in an office, and you're trying to set the culture, it's a buzzword out there today, you're trying to set the mood, you know how important words are. Here on our staff, we say words create worlds. And by that, we don't just mean Genesis. We mean the, the, the environment in which we live and the phrases that you'll hear us use over and over again because it helps you begin to think. It begins to form the mood, the vibe, uh, the atmosphere. Now, words are critically important. What parent doesn't know the power of, uh, of this phrase? I'm so proud of you. A few years back, I suffered a great loss. I, the best man at my wedding died, and he's way too young. And uh, it's been a beautiful experience as we've gotten to know the grandchild, his grandchildren that he didn't know. And for whatever reason, and I'm praising God for it, our home has become a place where we celebrate their birthdays. And so we had a birthday party for a four-year-old uh, this weekend. It was just fabulous. And I was talking with the grandkids, of course, but also his children. And I had a conversation with one of his daughters, and she was telling me about a very difficult situation she was going through. And, we and I, she and I had texted about it. And anyway, she said to me, she calls me Uncle Kevin, and she said, Uncle Kevin, I... I had this conversation, and it wasn't easy. And I said, I am so proud of you. And she swole up, and she goes, I hoped you'd say that. <laughs> we all need somebody to tell us that. Wives in the room, if you don't know this, maybe I'm just speaking for this, this man, this husband, me. But man, the powerful words a wife can, can breathe in over a wilting husband are these words. I'm so proud of you. You want to watch your man... Me? You're proud of me? That's awesome. You know, just kind of, oh, okay. Mary uh, will, my wife Mary will just gently lay those out there. And uh, after almost 40 years of marriage, she knows um, when I need them. And they make all the difference in the word, world. Words are powerful. Maybe that's why God chose to speak audibly to Jesus Christ when he was baptized. And this is what he said. It's on the screen behind me. This is my son whom I love, and with whom I'm well pleased. We're going to look at the creative words of God, where he calls things that aren't into existence. 
And I'm just wanting to tie them to the daily need we have for the power of words of encouragement in our life. Oh, we're going to look at about 10 phrases in the book of, in the first chapter of Genesis. We're going to go through the whole week. It's a big bite. And we're going to look at about 10 things that God says. And this is the way it's often laid out. And God said, and it was so, and it was good. And God said, and it was so, and it was good. As we sing about God's word, man, I just want, I want you to know what God says is good. It can be so, it is so, and it can be so in your life, and it, it can be transformative. So I'm going to invite you to hear God's word, consider how it could form your life differently, because that's what God's word does, creates form and fills it with meaning and purpose. And he can do the same thing in, in your life. So I'm going to invite you to hear God's word, consider it how might, it might form your life, and be able to experience and view the goodness of God as that happens, and that he might take the empty places of your life and fill them with wonderful things. And ultimately, that that would lead you to a place of confidence, which would lead you to a place of rest. Because that's where we end on day seven, is rest. We all have people that uh, we interface with, that we ask favors of. And there's those people that you ask favors of that don't give you rest. You're just not sure how they're going to do what you ask them. Will it be on time? Will it be as good as I could do it? Will it <clears throat> start on time? Will it finish on time? And then there's those other people. And when you ask them to do something, you can walk away from it. And you can be at peace because you're certain that it's going to happen just like you hoped it would, maybe even better than you could do it. If you don't have those people in your life, I'm praying you'll find them and you'll release things to them so that you might rest. God is such a person that we can trust his power. We prayed for his power. We sang about his power, his protection, his provision. Man, if we can find those things and rest in them, it'll be It'll be totally different. Now, when you come to a book, any book in the Bible, you should ask yourself, what's the genre? Is this poetry? Is this prophecy? Is this narrative? Is it story? Because you're going to interact with it differently, right? If you, if you don't know it's poetry and you're trying to make sense of it, you're like, where's the storyline? Why does everything have to end with the same sound? Because it's poetry. Hebrew poetry is very different than the way we do it. They, they rhyme in ideas. And so when it comes to Genesis, it's really particular. It's really unique of all the books of the Bible. My Hebrew professor, who I thoroughly enjoyed, he did not enjoy me as much as I enjoyed him. <laughs> he was a stick in the mud, and I kept trying to pry it out, but that, uh, that's a different matter. He says this, the classification of the genre of Genesis is not a simple matter. The work is part of the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. The books of Moses would be what the people of Israel would take as they go into the promised land. And it's, so that's what he's talking about here. It's, a, it's part of the Pentateuch, the law in general, but it's not legal. It's not exactly legal in literature. It's a work of narrative style, but it's not simply reporting 
past events, nor is it a complete history of ancestors. What it reports happened, but how it explains it is a theological interpretation. The final product is not just simply a collection of stories, but a, a theological excuse me, a theological shaping of reports and traditions for the instruction of Israel under the covenant that they would receive at, at Sinai. So it's, a, it's, it's to get the people of Israel ready. It's to get us ready. And, and the book of uh, Genesis has been sliced. It's been diced. It's been microwaved. It's been shrink-wrapped. It's been analyzed. It's been destroyed by people. We have put on it an assumption that it needs to meet our expectations for a textbook, for all things that we want to know. And it's not designed to do that. It is designed to give us a theological understanding of who God is, as we will see. So the first two, two verses help us understand when God speaks, things happen. God speaks order out of chaos. Order out of chaos. I don't know the last time you tried to create order out of chaos. I was talking to a young dad, and he said, um, yeah, my oldest daughter's 14. I said, how's her room? And he said, why would you ask that? And I said, because teenage girls' rooms are a fascinating study in chaos. And he said, it, it, it's, it, it, it is. It is. You open the door and go, I was just here five minutes ago. How could this have happened in this short of amount of time? I said, yeah, bringing order out of chaos is a challenge. Maybe you paint. Maybe you've, you've had a blank canvas before you. and you've got, you've got the challenge of filling it and the challenge of creating something beautiful out of nothing. Maybe a writer. And you've got a blank computer screen or a blank piece of paper. And you're like, okay. I've got to get my thoughts together, and I've got to go. That's a huge challenge to bring beauty, form, order out of chaos. But God doesn't just have a blank canvas. He's got to create the canvas. He's got to create the computer screen or the piece of paper. He's got to create it all and then fill it beautifully. And so we're going to start Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. But let me pray for us as we begin. Father God, we pause and we give you thanks for your word. Lord, I pray that you would open it to our hearts. There's so much here. I pray that you would speak to us, that it would grow in confidence, that we might find ourselves resting in, in you, in your power, in your protection, in your provision, and that it might shape our thoughts and minds about who you are and how gracious and loving you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep and over the... Uh, Excuse me, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So last week, I introduced these little journals. I brought some more. They were in hot demand uh, so it's, I'm a little late in getting them to you because now we're in it. But these are little, uh, this is the book of Genesis. One page is Genesis, the next page is a journal. So take your notes today, stuff them in here. And there's a couple up here and just take them as you need them. But <clears throat> it just, you read these two first two verses and you're like, hmm, something seems wrong here. Something, it's dark, it's formless, it's empty. 
But here's the thing you need to, need to pick up right away. In the beginning, God, he's already present. He's already there. He's completely different from creation, separate from creation. He is not a part of creation. He's not something humanity created. He is creating, and he's doing it with his word. And then in verse 2, enters, introduces us to the second phrase, and it gives us understanding of the situation and the need for creation. Right? It just sets it up right there. And there's, there's no specific declaration that the earth comes into being. It's just there. Created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was. But we don't have the de declarative statement that we'll have throughout. And here it is. It's formless. It's empty. It's formless and void. It's formless and there's darkness over it. Here's what I need you to realize. This is part of what I was trying to get at in the introduction. The Bible begins with creation, not to tell us about the creation, but to introduce us to God as the creator. Now let me, that's what it's doing. It's it, that we can learn a, uh, uh, some things about creation, sure, but it's introducing us to the God of creation. It's uh, different altogether. Consider um, your, uh, your profile on social media, what you include and what you don't include. You include what it is you want to do to introduce yourself. We talked about this a little last week. This is God saying, I need to introduce myself and its creator. We see that it's formless and void. The Hebrew is tohu vabohu. It's just fun to say. Tohu vabohu. There's a problem. It's empty. It's void. And there's darkness over the deep. And then there's a third phrase in the second verse that gives us a lot of hope. And that is that the Spirit ensures creation. It's hovering over the, the waters. The word hovering is used in elsewhere in the Old Testament of an eagle hovering over its nest, a mother eagle hovering over its nest. What's it doing? It's protecting. It's bringing back forth life of, of the little eagles that will fly from the nest. That's what's going on. And so right away we see <coughs> excuse me, God saying, I'm created heaven and earth. It's in a bad way. It needs, it needs something because it's formless and empty. And there's darkness that needs light, and the Spirit's there ensuring it. So I, I want to talk about this idea of formless and empty for a minute. Because it appears, if you watch the culture around us, that many people on the planet struggle with the fears of moving back to that state of being formless and empty. Let me explain what I mean. To be formless and empty, uh, personally, is, is, is a horrible feeling. But sometimes when you listen to the media around the world, it seems like we're just right on the edge uh, of catastrophe. There's deforestation, there's economic crisis, there's changing in, in, in uh, the weather patterns. And in any minute, we're going to falter and, and we're going to be in a chaotic world. And I used to watch the Weather Channel to kind of get the weather. Now you watch the Weather Channel and you get this apocalyptic message. You know, it's like there's rain coming, it's going to flood, and, you know, having been through a few hurricanes, I'm not joking about it, right? But it's just, it's, it's every day. And then you go to Hollywood and 
sometimes they, uh, the artist can tell you, they, they see the world a little differently. They can, can, they can stir up inside of us what people are feeling. They'll put it on the big screen. Movies like Mad Max, The Day After Tomorrow, Interstellar, and This Is The End all point to this great fear of moving in a moment's notice to being formless and void. On a personal level, maybe you struggle. Maybe you find you have vast parts of you that are just empty. I was uh, talking to a man not too long ago about his alcoholism. If you've struggled with alcohol, you know it doesn't fill you. It empties you. And he retold the story of taking just unbelievable amounts of alcohol and pouring it into the empty places of his soul only to find out it, it didn't work. And in the process, his life became formless and empty and chaotic. He lost his health. He lost his job. He lost his marriage. He lost his family. He lost his dignity. He lost everything. And then he turned to God, the one who can fill, the one who can change. And he turned to Jesus, and what he found was the giver of, of life, the one who can take our chaos and transform it. You might say, well, Kevin, that's anecdotal. That's just one story. No, it's millions of times. Millions of times Jesus had met those that have that are empty and broken and chaotic and brought life. That's why in John 10, 10, Jesus speaking says, I've come, I mean, excuse me, the thief has come to steal, kill and destroy, but I've come, I've come to give you life and give it abundantly. In other words, it's overflowing what I give. That's why he came. And so if you're sitting here today and we're starting Genesis and your point of need is not to understand creation, but to understand the emptiness of your soul, God has spoken and desires to fill the void in your life with what it was designed for, Him. Him. The parallel passage in the New Testament to Genesis 1 is John 1. It'll be on the screen. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus, part of the triune God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. God has spoken. And the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He spoke in, at Sinai and gave Moses the Word so the people had something. He speaks to us through God, the living Word, Jesus Christ. And He desires to fill our empty places. So now when we've got the, sage, the stage set, and what you're going to see is that God in the next, in His creation, is going to create form, and then he's going to fill it. He's going to create three forms, day one, two, and three. He's going to create the heavens, and then on day four, he's going to create the stars to fill it. Day two, he's going to separate the waters of the earth and the waters of the sky. Day five, he's going to fill it. 
Day three, he's going to create land and earth. Day six, he's going to put animals and humans on it. That's what he's about to do. That's what's going to unfold. So when we talk about the days of creation, people go crazy. I'll just tell you where I stand, then I'm going to give you some options. I like to take the days of creation as 24-hour days because I, I think the text supports it, and it really, really means that God did a ton in a short amount of time. It makes him, in my opinion, look... <laughs> He's not just creator. He's awesome creator. But I also want to say there are followers of Jesus who love Jesus, who struggle with either geology or some of the text. And so I want to give you some other options as you come to Genesis. Many people have pointed out there's no sun or moon for the first three days. So it's not really a literal day. It opens the door for it. It must be a phrase. It, must, it, it can mean something else. And so people have suggested these ideas. Um, a punctuated activity. The view that, that the 24-hour day of creation is then separated by an indefinite period of time. God created, and then all kind of time elapsed. The gap view, the Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there's eons in between. And that, you know, people, oh, where do the dinosaurs fit? Right there. <laughs> Just put them right there in the gap. And, and then, then, you know, you kind of go, okay, it's all good. My grandkids have asked me, grandsons, you know, they're just all into dinosaurs. And not only are they into them, but they can name them all. I don't know if you've tried to say the names of dinosaurs, but they don't have, they don't have two-syllable names. They have like 16-syllable names. And, they, all, and they, know, they know hundreds of dinosaurs by 16th. It's amazing. Jam them in there. Um, the day-age view. That view is that the creation day represents a geological age. This is the day. Maybe it's a literary, maybe it's a literary device to help us understand. Maybe it's, maybe it's not a literal day, but we think in days. So some people say, well, it's a literary device to structure creation. Maybe it's an analogy. This is the God work day. These are God days. I remember the first time I went to work with my dad. I don't know what happened, but I was with him. And we started way too early, and we ended way too late. There was no naps. There were no downtimes. There was, I was just like, are you kidding me? We have to leave when? And when are we getting back? I mean, I've got some TV shows I'd really like to catch this afternoon. And where are we eating dinner? <laughs> So there's a lot of ideas about it. I just tend to take it as, hey, God's creating. Might as well just do it. And, and I know that there's lots of questions and we're going to be faced with. Kevin, there's a lot of things that I have questions about. I'd love to hear those questions. We can't include all that we're reading Sunday to Sunday. Here's what's most clear. God's creating. And he's using his word and he's bringing it from nothing into something. Here's what I need you to know. God's pattern for creation is simply this, is to form what was formless and to fill what was empty. That's what he does. He takes what is formless and he forms it and he fills what is empty. So in our outline, God speaks to form what was formless. Those are the first three days. We're going to look at them rather briefly, and this is what I'm trying to get you to see. You're going to keep hearing these words over and over. And God said, and it was so, and it was good. God said, and it was so, and it was good. Here we go. 
Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Light and darkness throughout the Bible represents good and evil. And he's introducing good. He even says, and he saw that it was good. And he's separating good from evil. He's creating so much there in the, in the light that he creates. It's not the sun. There's no sun yet. There's just light. And he is the source of that. And it dispels that darkness that's hovering. And when he says he saw something and, and declared something about it, what's that mean? It means that God's making a statement about this. This is good, morally good. This is spiritually good. This is actually good, absolutely good. And then on day two, he's going to form um, the sky by separating the waters. Here's what it says in verse six through eight. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water, water on earth, water in the sky. And so God made a vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so and God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, and there was a second day. A vault, other translations have an expanse, but he's, he's creating the form. He created the heavens, he's creating the, the, the sky now, and then day three, he's going to create land, and he's going to fill it with plants. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And, and it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the water, and he called seas, and he saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the water that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And it was so, and the land produced vegetation and plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Now, we can get, we can get a little uh, uh, distracted as we read this, because we're not in this story. God is. And often that's how we come to it, is it not? Where's my picture? Where am I in this? But what we're seeing here is this loving, powerful God create it, something from nothing, and it's really hard to emphasize how radically different the creation account of Genesis is with the other Near Eastern religions of the time. And one of the ways to highlight it is just the fact that the, the ground was fertile. So it, many of us don't live near the ground. We get our, our meat prepackaged. We get our, our uh, vegetables pre-cut and cleaned. And so we're, we're, we're distant. I was talking to a fellow yesterday about his cattle and the dry, uh, how dry everything is. And so I asked him uh, the question a lot of people are asking is, where are you getting hay? Because the grass is too dry and then you're going to have to supplement it with hay. And he said, you know what? I ran into somebody that had a, a number of crops of soybean fail. And they're actually baling that for hay. And I said, is it, does it have any nutritional value? He said, no, not really. But it gives the cows some, some, something to eat. He's closer to the issue. In the, in the Near East, in Canaan, where they, the Israelites were going to go into the Promised Land, they worshipped a god named Baal, B-A-A-L. 
And there was another god, a part of that, called Mot, M-O-T. And the, and the way the, the religion worked is that Baal would suffer and be at the hands of, of the god of death, Mot, and, and people would have to go and sacrifice and go through pagan rituals and, and fertility prostitution to make sure that their fields produced. And God says, you know what? I'm giving it to you. It's over and above. It is self-perpetuating. It's a gift for me. It's going to be full. It's going to be plenty. And if you study global hunger, you know there's enough food on planet Earth to feed the Earth. The, uh, the issues are otherwise getting it there. And God says, you don't need to go through some pagan ritual. I'm going to provide it. What a stark contrast. I'm the source of light, not the sun to be worshipped. I'm the source of abundance. And, and you don't have to go through anything to, to make sure that it happens. So there are the forms. Now let's fill them. God speaks to fill what was empty. And on each of these, we're going to see something introduced that's new and different. And God said in verse 14, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, the days and the years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light was to govern the day and the lesser light was to govern the night. And he made the stars. And God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning a fourth day first thing I want you to see is in this uh, in that verse 14 it says these things are to mark out sacred times the stars and the moon they're not to be worshiped I've created them it's not zodiac it's not astrology they're not to be worshiped they're to keep there to, I'm going to use them to give you a sacred calendar. What was that calendar? Seven days in the week. The festivals that God would bring. He's saying, you don't create, you don't worship creation, you worship me. And these sacred times, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, that's the Hebrew calendar is basically what it's referring to. And then it, and then we're introduced in verse 16 to this great idea. The greater light is to govern the day. There's a responsibility. There's a purpose. You're not just throwing it out there like a painter might do with a wet brush and seeing where it hits. These things have purpose. Everything God does has purpose. It's not random. And he's piecing it together. God says, hey, these things are going to govern. We're going to see that word come up again in creation. So we get the lights in the heavens filling that form. Then the next form, he creates life in the sea and the sky, filling that form. Verse 20, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Again, this over in abundance. Let the birds fly above the earth across the vaults of the sky. So God created great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kinds. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. And there was the fifth day. 
So we fill the heavens and there's purpose. And now we fill the sky and the sea and we're introduced to the, a new word. First time it occurs in the Bible, to bless. He blessed them. He blessed them and said, I'm going to bless you so that you reproduce and that you fill over and above. There's just, it's extravagant. It's teeming with, uh, with wildlife. And to bless is to enable these creatures to reproduce, to reproduce, to reproduce. And now we'll get to the sixth day, the creation of humanity. I just need you to know we're, we're getting through creation. And in two weeks, we're going to come back to this verse and talk about some contemporary issues that it obviously butts up against. So we're not covering that today, but we are in two weeks. So you'll have to come back. Yeah. God creates land and human life. Verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. God said it. It was so. And it was good. It's all good. All good. And then the pinnacle of creation is humanity. And we live in a culture, and sometimes I feel like animals and people are almost equal in some, in some places. And in the Bible, it says, oh, no, 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 they're radically different. doesn't mean animals are unimportant. just means they're radically different. So for all those that you want their dogs in heaven, you know, don't throw any stones just yet, okay? Verse 26, and God said, let us make mankind in our image. Again, we're going to come back to this passage. In our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds and birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Like the animals, humans are formed from the ground. They're provided food and they are blessed. But unlike the animals, humans are the only creatures that are made in the image of God. So here's what I want you to see. There's a divine plan. I'll put it right up here. There's a divine plan. Let us make mankind, and we'll talk about that plural in a couple of weeks. Let us make mankind. It doesn't say, and God said. There's a plan. It's a statement saying, hey, let's, let's do something different. Let us make mankind. There's a divine pattern in our image, not just in any image, in our image. And there's a divine purpose so that they may rule and have dominion and have responsibility over everything else that I've created. And may they be blessed and may they be uh, multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? With image bearers. God wants his image all over his creation. He wants it all over the place. It's, a, it's an amazing statement. And it means it gives us so much meaning as human beings to think the creator of the universe, the creator of all that we know, created us in his image, created us 
on purpose, not accidental, not consequential, not random, on purpose created humanity. In his image, with a purpose. And the purpose is to, to, to have image, his image all over the earth. Now, if you read this, you, you have to hear in it also the Great Commission, because it is a commission of Jesus Christ. He commissioned his disciples, I need you to go to, into all the nations, and we'll explain why that is when we get to chapter 11. We're gonna, I need you to go to all the nations of the world, and I need you to make disciples. I need you to create disciples. Form in them a desire to follow me and know me. Why? So that the image of Christ can be over all the earth. It sounds very similar. God bringing glory to himself by being a global God. A global God. That's why we say, you know, at the chapel, we help people, as, as Eric said it so well, meet people. I mean, meet Jesus. Meet, know, and follow him all over the earth. Where? On the campus in the city, and literally around the world. So then we get to the closing verses. And then God said, to chapter 1, <laughs> and then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. What a provision. I'm going to take care of you. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Not only am I going to feed humanity, I'm going to feed all of the creatures of the world. Many, many scholars and, and Bible students read this and go, it seems like the, the first uh, creation, everybody was a vegetarian which may be really disappointing for some of you. But when you read the end in the book of Revelation, it says the lion and the lamb lay together, the prey and the predator. Why is that so? Because everything is put back and there's not the destruction of life. God is, God is saying, I'm going to, be, I'm going to provide in abundance. And then verse 31, and God saw all that he had made and it was not just good, but very good. It was very good when there was evening and there was morning and there's the sixth day. Great place to stop the sermon and stop creation, but we're doing neither. What does God do next? He blesses and we rest. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And then God does something amazingly unique. He rests on the seventh day. Genesis 2.2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Rest is resistance. It is willed passivity, one pastor put it. He stops from all his production. It is an unhurried life. Too many Christians, way too many Christians, and I have to include myself 
in this category do not know how to rest, do not know how to find rest, do not know how to stop and cease the movement. Watkin wrote this, resting on the seventh day draws a line in the sand against the advance of modern workaholism and proclaims in a stern voice, thus far and no further to the unhealthy excess and the superabundance of endless productivity gains and at the same time striking a claim, uh, a claim for the healthy expression of praise and thanksgiving for God's great work. God stopped. Rest doesn't have as its purpose to refuel so I can work some more. Rest is a spiritual discipline, not just a physical one. Rest is a choice to stop laboring, to stop working, to stop worrying, to stop thinking that everything depends on us. Rest is a choice to say, I trust God who can take what is formless and create form and what is empty and can fill it. So I stop and I say, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. The seventh day is the first time that God imparts holiness into anything. To make something holy is to set it apart for, uh, for special God use. To sanctify is the same word as holy. It's a different English word. I'm going to set it apart. I'm going to, and he says, this day is to rest. This day is to cease. Sabbath rest is a gift to re be received, not a duty to be performed. It's a gift to be received. And in the new covenant, it takes on a different form altogether, and that is to rest in Jesus Christ. To rest in Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just, God, just as God did from theirs. Where do you need to stop and rest in God? Not just stop. I have been deeply challenged by my inability to do this. I have to ask the Lord, I need, I need you to, to help me do this. And inevitably, I back myself into the corner and I have to declare to myself, I'm not trusting you. Who is it that provides for you? Who is it that creates what you need? Is it you and all your work and all your ingenuity and all your strength and all your, your good looks and charm and education? Or is it God who's put you in this time and space and given you all those things? He's the great provider. So I stop and I say, I'm going to cease the activity and I'm going to trust that you will provide. Well, what about protection? Who's going to protect me? From, from the calamities of this world and the pending chaos and formlessness that seems to be around, God's going to protect me because he's the one who can change those things. Who's going to bring significance to my life? Too much of our life is defined by what we do, what we have. Well, what if we don't have and what if we can't do? My dad's 91 and he's a doer. And being unable to do is very hard for him. And I'm watching him age, and I'm wondering, Kevin, have you not created the same for yourself? If you, if you don't learn to rest in Christ, trust him for your provision. Trust him 
for your protection. Trust him for your significance. Trust him to defend his name and his cause. Trust him for your growth and maturity. Trust him for salvation is where it ultimately lands. Creation, right? It's just right there. And I think, of course, today there's very few places. When I was young, a lot of things stopped on Sunday. Things just stopped. The blue laws. And you couldn't get groceries. You couldn't get this. You had to plan ahead. You had to think about it. And it was a part of the the rhythm of the culture. Maybe we were uh, healthier then. I don't know. But we were, at least it was built in. It's not now. And now we have 24 7 um, information, connection, and we are just emotionally and spiritually and physically exhausted. I was asking a doctor who told me something I didn't know that now they have um, uh, somebody dedicated, a doctor dedicated just to work in the hospital. So if somebody comes in, they're called hospitalists, you come in, there's a doctor there. I said, you know, I've never understood why I would want to call you after 23 hours of work and see if you're on your best game. Why is that? Why, why do we push ourselves like that? I don't know. I don't know. Jesus says this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There's work to do, sure. That's what a yoke is about. But we need to learn how to do it. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. So creation is full of unbelievable activity. Things that weren't are. He said it, it was so, and it is good. Things that were chaotic and formless now have form and are filled with beauty. And he's able to rest. Can I trust a God who has that much power to handle my little problem? Can I trust a God who has that much purpose to organize my little life? Can I trust a God who has that much love and generosity to meet my little need? Can I have enough trust to stop and enjoy him? Hmm. Let's end on that note. Thanks for your patience. I didn't look at the clock on purpose, but I should have. Hmm. Father God, thank you so very much for Genesis. And um, all joking aside, Lord, I confess before my church family my inability to take the break, to rest in your arms, to trust you. May we be a people who walk lightly, not overly consumed with our importance, not overly fearful of the unknown, not only not uh, overly ambitious with our productivity, but we can rest with you. I pray that you would fill our voids with your great grace and love and that you would allow us to rest in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.